Well, everybody's experienced it. So everyone at the beginning of this message will know what I'm talking about. I call it the dreaded schoolyard pick. The way it works is straightforward. During recess or gym class, the teacher wants to organize a game, maybe kickball, softball, basketball, whatever it is. So you line everybody up on a line. The teacher takes two students, has them pick two teams. Teacher puts a number behind their back, one student picks it, another student picks a number, Those, the person closest to the number gets the first pick. So the picks usually take place in one of two ways. You either pick the most athletic looking students to join your team, or you pick your friends. You're used to that, you understand what I'm talking about. First time it ever happened to me, I remember it like yesterday. I was playing basketball across the street with my older brother at the local park group of random guys showed up. There were enough players to start a game, so we split up to pick teams. I was two to four years younger than everybody else, and uh, so when we lined up, being the youngest, being the shortest, I was picked last. I was mad. I was so mad I was going to prove that I was the best one on that court, so I'd be picked first the next time. I wanted to be picked first. I wanted to be first. I still do. Even at this old age, we'll go and play flag football out in the field over there. Mom might be the oldest guy, but I still want to be picked first. Pick me. I think everyone does, because when you're picked last, it hurts. It really hurts. In my experience, I have found that people that hate sports the most as adults, you can often trace it back to some of their first days in school when they were picked last. It hurts, really does, because we want to be recognized as good. I want to be seen as good, and throughout life, this game of schoolyard pick plays out in a lot of different areas. It plays out in the dating life. When my picture's on that screen, do they swipe right or left? Huh? See, you know what I'm talking about. If I'm at work, I should get the promotion. I'm the best. Or with friendships, when my friend gets married, I hope I'm asked to be the best man. It works in almost every area of life. And this principle is also true when it comes to the subject of religion and piety. We secretly look around and we compare ourselves with others to see who's the holiest among us. Who gets to teach the Sunday school class? Who's chosen for deacon? Who's going to be the elder? Who's going to be asked to join the women's ministry team? Or who is just the most holy and pure? We compare. We rate. Whether you know it or not, we do it all the time. But here's the question. Who out of all of us would Jesus pick first to be on his team? The kingdom of heaven. Today we get to see firsthand starting in Matthew 19, verse 13, who would Jesus pick? So this is called Jesus' Schoolyard Picks. And we're going to begin in 13, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. So here's how it begins. Verse 13, chapter 19. Children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people that brought them. 
But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. NIV said he went away sad because he was wealthy or had great wealth. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Then verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man, rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's where we'll end on the reading. So this section of scripture has become for me one of the most difficult to understand over my years of trying to understand scripture. Because I grew up in a branch of Christianity that had an established pecking order where different groups of believers were better than others based on their outward piety and their commitment. And this passage was used to support that, very strongly so. It was often used to segregate segregate the regular churchgoer from the, what I'd call the career religionist. You know, the regular churchgoer, Jesus loves them, but the man, the sold-out person, they're the first pick. Those who are really sold out, like Mother Teresa, Pope John Paul II, priests and nuns, they'll take a vow of poverty to prove their holiness before God. And growing up, I really did think they are the first string Christians. They gotta be. They gotta be. And obviously, Jesus would pick them first to be on his team. And so for years, I bought into this distinction of holiness. Like everything else in life, you have a hierarchy. And the top Birds on the Christian stoop are priests, nuns, popes, pastors, theologians, Christian professors. They're up there. People who own soup kitchens. They got to be up there. That's a tough job. Missionaries. Oh, they're way up there. And, of course, grandma with her rosary was always up there, too, in my mind. They're the professional Christians. And then the best of the best of professionals, we call them the saints. They're the top gun Christians. Now that that's out, I can use that again. They're the top gun Christians. They're the best in the religious professional class. And they're part of the Christian Hall of Fame. But when it comes, came to my personal walk, and kind of still does, I may be a pastor, but 
deep down, I'm just a regular schlep, really, to be honest with you. I'm an uncouth religious peasant who stumbles and bumbles across the landscape of Christianity. If I really wanted to be picked first, I tell myself, I would just give up everything. Join a monastery, you know, like Marie and Sound of Music, go up to the mountains and sing the hills are alive up there. And serve God wholeheartedly, praying all day long, eating no food and vowing chastity. And then if I did all that, finally I'd be considered sold out. And I'm sure then God would pick me first. And I'll tell you what, most, much of this thinking came directly from this passage. But when you really take your time on this passage, it proves exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. In most Bibles, if you look at your Bible, verse 13 through 15 will be separated. And in my Bible, the, the topic says, let the children come to me. Do you know man put that in there? That really wasn't there in the original. But we, we put 13 to 15 together. And that's for, you know, that section we kind of look at and say, isn't that sweet? He loved little children. That's so nice. That's really nice. But man, when we want to get serious about our religion, we start in verse 16, the subject of the rich young ruler. That's real meat. That's where Christian first stringers need to study. But I'm going to completely make an argument that 13 and 15 are key to understanding 16 and the rest. They really are. So let me begin this way. By asking you, if you were to pick someone, to join your team, you're the, you're the captain, you get to pick someone to join your team to start the church or to be seen as the beginning movement of a great religious witness on earth, who would you pick? And I'm taking it from what I just read. Would you pick first this little kid? Is that who you'd pick? This needy, meek, timid, grungy, uncouth little urchin? Is that who you'd take? He's cute, sure, sure he's cute, but he wouldn't know how to prepare a church budget. He, he couldn't develop a five-year growth plan or run a business meeting or write a constitution. This guy could not start a worldwide evangelistic crusade or outreach. And you try to have this kid talk to an atheist. He wouldn't know the first thing to say to impress the atheist. It's kind of embarrassing to pick a kid like this. Could you imagine telling people you go to a church full of children? Nobody would ever take Jesus seriously with a guy like this. I'm going to give you this guy, though. This is what the rich young ruler would look like in our day and age. Look at this guy. He's smart, sophisticated, intelligent. He's got a jacket on. See how he's got a jacket on? Technology in his hand. He's always ready with the update info. Modern frames of his glasses, you know. Close-shaved beard. This guy looks good. And the tie. This guy's got it going. He's got it going. You need a tie for people to take your religion seriously. Everyone knows that. Everybody knows that. So who would you pick? It's a no-brainer. Is there even a question about who you'd take? If we are ever going to win the world for Christ, we need to impress it, and that kid is not going to impress the world. No chance. But look at 13 to 15. Look at 13 to 15. 
And I'm going to remind you of 18, verse 2 and 4. So 13 to 15. Children were brought to Jesus that he may lay, lay his hands on them and pray. Disciples didn't like this. They're like, no, Jesus, don't pick those little kids. Jesus said, let the little ch children come to me and don't hinder them. Look at verses, uh, chapter 18, go one chapter ahead, verse 2 through 4. We read this before, but I'm not sure we take it that serious. Matthew 18, 2 to 4. Jesus called to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' first pick is the kid. Jesus picks the kid. I don't understand. Why would Jesus pick the kid? Well, from my limited understanding of what Jesus means by this is I think there's three reasons Jesus picked the kid. Kids aren't, they're not scared to admit their need. Dad, help me. Second reason, kids are honest about their inability to save and rescue themselves. But here's the third reason why I think Jesus is no problem picking a kid. Because children let Jesus be the captain of the team and they don't care if he gets all the glory. Mike sang it with us this morning. Not to us, but to your name be glory. Think about it. I, like, don't you miss being a kid? I miss it. it. Seemed like the world moved slower and I had time to wonder. I also laughed a whole lot more than I do now, and the reason's really simple. The world was not dependent on me when I was a little kid, and I knew it. Now I feel like if I don't work hard enough, if I don't have a to-do list that's a mile long, if I don't take every serious issue as my responsibility, and I feel like a slacker, I'm an important person, and I need to do something about everything. Therefore, I need to worry. I need to act busy. I need to be tough-skinned and serious, because if I don't worry, it means I don't care. And if I don't care... The world's going to go to hell in a handbasket without me caring. So I need to worry and fret and be anxious. God's not going to take care of it. I have to take care of it. Man, it was so much easier as a kid when I knew Dad was going to take care of it. But listen to Jesus in verse 14 of chapter 19. This is a crazy statement. So he says, not only let not the little children come to me, don't hinder them. He says, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Heaven belongs to the kids. In a way, you could say it like this. He's pleased to give the chocolate factory to the needy and humble child. Why? Because they let Jesus be Jesus, and they let him run it his way. They let the Savior save them, and that is all Jesus really wants from the team he chooses, people who really let Jesus lead. But this is not who the world picks. Not at all. They want the impressive looking guy. Like, here's the world's pick right here. Oh, okay, heaven belongs such as these. Here's the world's pick. They pick him, and look at the, in, in verse 25, when he went away, he went away. And the disciples heard what Jesus said as this guy walked away slowly, and they say, who, who then can be saved? Another way they're saying this, Jesus, if this guy doesn't get in, who does? This rich young ruler had everything. 
And the reason he's called a, yule, a ruler, Luke says, the book of Luke calls him a ruler, like he's some kind of, holds some kind of office, important office, but he's wealthy and he holds an office. Why did they like this guy? Why does a girl, uh, the world want a guy like this? Because number one, he's moral. Look at verse 20. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept. He's kept all of the laws. Man, this guy's moral. Don't you want a person like that to join a church that is upright and always does the right thing? Verse 16, he's earnest. Earnest, look at this. He, he comes up to Jesus and says, Rabbi, what do I need to do? Tell him, just tell me, what do I need to do to get into heaven? I'll do it. And then he says he does all these things in verse 20. He goes, okay, I did all those. What else do you want me to do? This guy is earnest. He has ambition, initiative, energy, desire. He's the potential. He's an amazing guy. And not only that, he's rich. Verse 22. In the ESV it says he has great possessions. In the NIV he has great wealth. Rich people are just better, aren't they? They're just better. Even during this writing, riches to many of the Jews were a sign that God's favor must be on them if they're so rich. We even have some teaching like that in Christian circles. It's called the health and prosperity movement. If you really have faith, God will give you what you want. I want to be rich. I really do, don't you? I mean, I really want to be rich. Whenever I'm around rich friends, when I'm around my family, I have a lot of rich family members, I really feel inferior, like I've done something wrong. I'm a slacker. Because wealthy people are just a cut above the rest of us, aren't they? They just are. It's true in the church too. If you ever go to church conferences where they have big churches together, do you know who speaks? The guy who runs the richest church. Every time. Every time. They wouldn't have me speak. You're from that Kent City place. <laughs> I've heard it a number of times. So why would, why would, if this is true of this guy, if this is true of this guy, you have to ask this question. Why would Jesus let this guy walk away? The best pick in the church slowly leaves. Why didn't Jesus try to conjole him back? Doesn't Jesus see the huge potential he just let slip through his fingers? This guy could have written more letters than Paul the Apostle. This guy could have maybe handled the books instead of Judas. Imagine if I sent a visitor like this away from our church. The deacons would have my head. Ken would have my head. He would say, Chris, you just lost a donor that could have paid off our whole building project. It's funny, I had a dream last night. It was really bizarre. I remembered it right before I woke up. Bill Gates joined our church. And my wife, my wife was groaning, don't you know he's part of the World Economic Forum? You sure you want that guy? That was my dream. It was really weird. Anyhow, but he could pay off our whole building program. I even felt, you know when you have a dream, you kind of feel the inside. It's like, man, if we had him, just think of how our salaries could be raised. That was in my mind. Anyhow. And you know, apparently Jesus didn't want to see the kingdom of heaven grow. So why did he let the guy walk away? 
I think it's very simple if you read the very opening statement. This guy believes the big lie, the real big lie, not the political big lie. This guy believes the big lie. You can find it in verse 16, and I'm going to read it slowly to see if you can catch the lie that he believes. Verse 16, and behold a man, this is the rich young ruler, came up to Jesus saying, teacher or rabbi, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? His whole premise is wrong. Let me show you what this guy believes, and I'm, I believe people in our own congregation believe this lie. But majority of people in any religious institution have bought into this lie. And I'm just going to call it the natural assumption of man. And you know what assume does to you? Makes an ass out of you and me. And I know I'm not, not allowed to say that, but it's true. And here's the big lie. You ready for the big lie? The big lie is number one. Eternal life can be earned. Rabbi, what must I do? People actually believe that my religious actions, my hard work, giving up things like money, pleasure, swearing, meat on Friday, doing, having good intentions, having a positive attitude, following a series of traditions, wearing crosses on a necklace, and even how I dress and sing songs contributes to my efforts to make it into heaven. So getting into heaven for a lot of people is all about doing good, which leads to the second point. Good deeds more good deeds I do, the more they add up, the more they add up, the better I am. The more I do, the better I become. Practice makes perfect. One writer says, religiously we like to look at ourselves as potential spiritual athletes desperately trying to make God's team. So the more I do, whoo, the better chance I have to be picked first. That's the point. Even Aristotle said, we learn to play the piano only by practicing, and we learn a skill only by doing, so it is with righteousness. We must do good things to be good. What's really interesting about this, I could practice the piano for years and years and years. I could never play like Rhonda, ever. The person who goes to church more is at more events when the doors are open, gives more money, reads more verses, must be better, right? That's the assumption, which leads to verse 3. A person is good or reaches a, a goodness or gets into heaven when they have more good deeds credited on their behalf than bad actions. That's why people like to compare themselves with Hitler. Honestly, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Oh, is that the standard? When did that become the standard? I don't know, but it works, right? I should get in because I didn't kill 8 million Jews. Oh, you're in. It's weird. To prove uh, how people use the standard, go to any crowd. If you go to a fair this year, just start asking people, do you think you'll make it in heaven? Majority will answer, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. That's why this guy is focusing on what good deed must I do. I did this as a kid. I really believed the less I swore as compared to my friends, the more godly I was. I'd even watched the Ten Commandments every Easter when it came on ABC because it proved how godly I really was. That's a long movie to suffer through. 
I know all the lines of Charlton Heston. That shows you how godly I am. So how would you answer this man's question when he comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do? How would you answer? Look how Jesus actually answers. Verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? Listen, here's his answer. There is only one who is good. Is good. First things first. Jesus uses the word is and not does. So you could say it like this. Salvation is about being. He is good, not doing. It's about what is on inside you instead of focusing on what you do on the outside. It's who you are. Jesus would always talk about trees and fruit. You can go back to Matthew 7, 16 to 20, and he talks about the relationship between good and bad fruit. Good fruit comes from good trees, Jesus says. Fruit is the doing. The kind of tree is the being. So you must first be before you can do. So you can say it like this. An apple tree must first be an apple tree before it produces apples. It's so obvious. But we don't see that in the Christian life. You will never get apples from a banana tree. Did you know that? You never will. If you want good work, the person must first be good. I can stick apples on a banana tree with duct tape as much as I want, but it will always be a banana tree. But when a tree is an apple tree, eventually apples will come forth. Salvation is about changing you from a bad person, an evil person, to a good person. I can do religious things. It's like sticking apples on a banana tree until I'm blue in the face, but that won't make me good. Hey, I tithe this week, so God's got to be happy. But if I'm good, I will naturally over time do the things that glorify God. I don't read the Bible to make me good, but because I'm good on the inside, well, I will want to read the Bible. You could say it like this. I don't do something to become I do something because I already am. That's where the rich young ruler got it wrong. So let's talk about being good, because Jesus is going to go on this whole diatribe about being good. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. So to begin with, the starting point of goodness is God. That's what he's alluding to. In fact, scholars will say he's jumping back to this, the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy 6.4. The Jews would say this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then they'd say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. So the answer by Jesus should have stopped this guy when he said there's only one who's good. The guy should have said, okay, if only God is good, that means I can't be good. But he didn't. He kept going because he believed in his own goodness. We're not good without God. Second thing, so Jesus is trying to expose this guy's inside heart. So Jesus uses the law to wake him up. He uses the law to wake him up. And if you'll notice, starting in verse 18, he goes through this list. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Now if you were reading Matthew along with us, and Matthew 5 Jesus talked about these, but he said this about these. He goes, it's not the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. So he began, he said, even if you hate a man, you've broken the commandment of you shall not murder. You know this one about don't commit adultery? Even if you look after a woman and lust after her, you've committed adultery. 
The disciples, when they heard that, they'd probably understand, but this guy only sees the law as something he can achieve. Yeah, I've done all that, he says. I've done all that. He got it wrong because the law is meant to expose your heart that you really can't do it. That's the point of the law. The law is good, but the law is impossible for us to do fully. It's to break us. The law is meant to expose the heart and their need for Christ, but this guy was blind. So what Jesus does is he ratchets it up. He ratchets it up even further. And then 19, he says, Honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbors yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what shall I do that I lack? Jesus said, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So there's three ways to interpret verse 21. One is the religious way. Jesus is kind of saying, Okay, you can be a good Christian, but you want to be a perfect Christian? You want to be like a priest or none? Then sell it all. Which is a wrong way to view it. That's not what Jesus is saying. So what is the right way to do it? Here's two ways to take verse 21. If you notice in verse 18, if you're going to go back to the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments we call the Decalogue. There's ten of them. Jesus is actually quoting in verse 18 the second half, all of these practical portions, and he leaves out the first half, which is, you shall not have any other gods before me. That's the first part. Well, this guy did. Do you know what God he had before him? Money. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. And clearly money was this guy's idol. And he had a lot of it. So it's pretty clear he worshipped it. Some other people, some other I've heard some other scholars say, really, verse 21 is just the extrapolation of verse 19. See where it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself? If he really loved his neighbor, he'd see their need and then he'd give out of his generosity to help their need. Instead of keeping accumulating for himself, he will see the need of those in need and he'll give to them because he loves them as himself. And Jesus is basically saying, it's clear you don't love people as, as yourself because you're hoarding it for yourself. That could be true too. So basically, if you really love, you will really want to do good and give it all away. It's what Jesus might be pointing to. But what I think is happening is Jesus is calling this guy's bluff. He knows he can't be perfect. He can't be as good as God. Here's what I want, I want to bring you to something to really think about. Here's what I think is going on. So look, listen to verse, the words in verse 21. If you would be perfect, he says, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor. And then he says, and then come follow me. Go and sell what you're hanging on to, what you're finding meaning in. Give it up and then cleave to me. Leave something so you can cleave to me. Look in, uh, right before this in the same chapter. Verse 5, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So in other words, 
In marriage, you must first leave and cleave to achieve oneness or achieve unity. In the same way, I think Jesus is telling this guy, leave what you were hanging on to in the past. For him is wealth of the world and cling to Jesus and you'll have oneness with Christ where you're going to find your goodness. So really, Jesus isn't looking for good people, people who do good things. He's looking for a bride who's in love with him who's willing to give things up so they can have a love affair with him. And the way he picks his bride is they are the ones who want him. Jesus wants a bride who wants him above everything else, even money and wealth. It reminds me of Psalm 45, 10, and 11. The psalmist says, listen, daughter, listen, and pay careful attention Forget your people and your father's house. All those things you cling to, forget your people and your father's house. Why? Because verse 10 says, because the king is enthralled in you. He's enthralled with your beauty. So honor him. That means bow to him. Give your life to him because now he's your Lord. This is more about marriage than it is about being picked first. It's about being loved by God himself. The commentator France said about verse 21, the release from material preoccupation is not in itself the secret of eternal life. It's the introduction into a new way of life. Because he, can't, he has to cling to the old way of life, he won't be able to experience this new way of life with Christ. Gerhard Ford wrote, obtaining goodness and righteousness. This is really interesting. Obtaining goodness and righteousness is not like accomplishing something but like dying to something and then coming to life to something else. It's not like earning something, but more like falling in love. So new life is not achieved by doing the law and selling everything. It's giving up that thing that is holding you back from being united with Christ. It's a whole different thing. In other words, here's what I think Jesus is saying to the disciples. To be good to be good, you have to give up. Stop trusting in your abilities and making it about you. God doesn't pick those who are great in themselves. He picks those that see God as great. He picks the children. And when you see God as great, you'll want to leave that which has you finding your identity in, and your goodness in, and you'll cleave to your new life which is found in Christ. Paul says it like this. You can find this in Philippians 3, 7, 11. Listen to Paul's words. It's exactly this. It's exactly this. Paul says, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Did you know falling in love is another way you could say I have faith? I have fallen in love with Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes. To know the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow, somehow, attaining the resurrection of the dead. So you could say it like this. When you finally leave and cleave, it is then, and only then, that you become one with Christ. 
Just like a husband becomes one with wife when he leaves and cleaves, when you leave and cleave, you become united with Christ. And when you're united with Christ, his life is poured in you and you become good. It's a righteousness that you cannot earn. It's given to you by Jesus himself. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? There will be a coming time when you're asked to choose. You're going to be asked to choose. Might not be wealth, it might be something else. Might be friends. It might be your family. Some of you have a family that don't understand your commitment to Christ. They don't get it. My grandma never understood mine. And you have to give those up to cleave to Christ. And so look at verse 27. And Peter said in reply to Jesus after he said, what's impossible for man is possible with God. And it's interesting how it says with God, united with God, all things are possible. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in a new world, oh, Peter said in verse 27, see we've left everything, we've left everything and we followed you. What then will we have? I mean, is, this a, is it worth it, Jesus? Jesus then said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. Did you know if you're following him now, you're considered a co-heir with him? It means you're going to rule with him. And everything he owns is yours. You just don't see it now. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel, verse 29 and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and they will inherit eternal life. So he's just given the answer to how you get eternal life. You let go those things that you're holding on to to get identity and significance to. Your family, your work, your possessions. They get in the way of Christ let go. But if you give them up, the exchange is fair. Those who are chosen by Jesus get the world in return. That's what he's saying. So I've been going reading this book because um, Scott, who is our intern, I have to have him read it. It's called Brothers Were Not Professionals by John Piper. And he's making a point there's no hierarchy of professional Christians. He says, the more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we will leave in our wake. For there is no professional tenderheartedness. There is no professional Christ or childlikeness. There is no professional panting after God. Our business is to pant after God in prayer and to weep over our sins. And that's just not professional. So you could say, we're not called to be polished or professional. We're not even called to be good or better than others in our goodness. We're called to be the bride of Christ who is completely and utterly reliant on him. I was thinking about it like this. Did you know brides are not chosen by the schoolyard pick? People don't choose their spouse by the schoolyard pick. They are chosen by this mysterious thing called love. You don't pick your bride because they're better than others. You pick them because you want them to be yours and yours alone. And that's how it is with God and us.